Welcome to a coronavirus update. I'm Marcus Stead and I'm joined as usual by Greg Lance Watkins. We're recording this podcast late on the evening of Friday the 20th of March with a view to releasing it early on the morning of Saturday the 21st of March and it's clear that life in Britain is gradually grinding to a halt. We had a series of measures announced on Monday in the form of advice By midweek, it was announced that schools were to close by the end of the week at the latest. And on Friday tea time, we had an announcement from the Prime Minister that pubs, bars, restaurants, theatres, cinemas were to close by the end of trading on Friday at the latest. And there was a clear instruction not to go out socialising on the Friday evening that's just gone. Greg, we're recording this podcast um, on the evening of Friday, the 20th of March, and it seems as though life in this country is changing day by day in some very dramatic ways. We'll come on to that in a moment. But to look at exactly where we are with things, have you got today's stats, please? Indeed, I have. And good evening, everybody. We now are in a position we are romping ahead with the number of cases announced in that uh, we were only on to quarter of a million yesterday, but we're now up to 274,077 cases declared. And that was at 2121 GMT this evening. And deaths stand at 11,354. So they have also gone up. Uh, in the same period by about 1,500 in a day. Interestingly, there is very great reason to believe that every time we look at the statistics, you find that they are creeping up in percentage terms. You'll find looking across the board at the percentage of deaths to cases declared, you're looking at about 4.4% mortality. Now, this figure has been creeping up. It started at 2 to 2.5%, uh, as declared by the government. However, I don't think you can trust the figures remotely from any country. They are merely a guide. Yeah, now but- there's, a, there's an important point you make here. And obviously, those statistics are alarming and they're very concerning indeed. Now, I have got family in northern Italy. There's the one caveat to what you say when we're talking about percentages, that Italy has an aging elderly population. So what we're seeing there is not necessarily what we're seeing in other countries. Is that because they have an elderly population? Because in terms of healthcare provision all right, nowhere's perfect. In Italy, is, they're working their backsides off to treat as many people as they can. But in terms of healthcare provision, Italy is one of the better countries. Is the Italian figure so alarming because of the elderly demographic in Italy? It's interesting to note that demographically, Italy has the second highest age group in the world, only um, outstripped by Japan. Second highest is a statistical anomaly within this it's also worth noting why italy has gone from just being 
a country with a few cases to suddenly rushing up to 47,000 cases and 4,000 deaths when China is only declaring approximately 81,000 and 3,248 deaths. This is in part due to the fact that we understand the Italian leather industry, which is almost exclusively northern Italy, uh, both shoes, handbags and fashion, uh, based in and around Milan, was bought fairly exclusively. Uh, the industry was bought out by China in the last few years, and there are between 100 and 150,000 Chinese involved in the leather industry in Italy and direct flights, I believe daily to and fro Wuhan and Milan. So that is very, very interesting what you're saying there. And that brings me on to what I want to move on to next, which is I was reading about the situation in Singapore and the situation in Singapore is they had a period of effective lockdown and now they've tried opening up a little bit. Now, for those who don't know the country, I consider Singapore, the story of Singapore since the 1950s, to be an enormous success story under Lee Kuan Yew, the various prime ministers from 1990 after his retirement, and now his son is the prime minister. And Singapore is an advanced, wealthy country, good health care, um, high employment rates, an educated population, a very well-disciplined population, good law and order. It's, it's a huge success story, but it's a very densely populated island. And they had lockdown, in effect, for quite a long period, a couple of months. And now they're trying to open up a little bit. And there does seem to be a lot of concern that as soon as they start allowing flights back in and everything else, it's only a matter of time before they get a second wave. And it's a very, very hard thing to stop. OK, you may have contained the virus on your small little island. How do you keep it out under these circumstances? It's a very difficult thing to get right. And in that context, with that in mind, I personally take what we're hearing from China with a very large pinch of salt when we're hearing them saying, oh, with this province and that province, no new cases today. I take all that with a pinch of salt. But even if it's true, keeping it out in those parts of the world is going to prove very, very hard. I think keeping it out in any part of the world is going to prove uh, not so much hard, uh, but completely and utterly impossible uh, when you think that already the virus has spread to 188 countries. Mm. So there's not many more to go. Uh, but two things on your summary there. Singapore is not only a small island, it's a very small population. It's managed to keep its total cases down with lockout to 385 cases. Mm. Interestingly, having had the lockdown, it was standing at 345 cases, but suddenly the effects of that lockdown being lifted has led to 40 new cases today alone. In Singapore? In Singapore. Well, this, this proves... because so it's I, I, the, got the, a potential to run and run now. This is the problem. Now, this is the problem, isn't it? I take my hat off to what Singapore has achieved. I, I think they went about it the right way. And yes, they, 
they contained things and there were no new cases for days on end. You try to get some semblance of normality and get the economy up and running and people back in work. And Singapore, by definition, as you rightly say, it's a small island with a small population. It relies on people coming and going and lots of flights coming in and out. Soon as you try to get some semblance of normality, what you have just described has gone and happened because the article I was referring to where they say, okay, we're trying to open things up a little bit now, was 48 hours old. And the point here is, there is no escape from it. You cannot, there is no place on this earth where you can go to escape from it. We are all in the same boat, in effect. And this brings us now onto the situation in Britain. Now, well, life... Kevin, before we do that, hmm. you quoted China. Hmm. I think you'll find that China, with its... 81,000 declared cases, which gave rise to 39 new cases today, mm. as declared when you compare with the very few cases that gave rise to 40 new cases today in Singapore, mm. is fairly daunting. And I don't actually find the, China, the figures for China remotely plausible. Mm, because agreed. all of a sudden they have effectively stopped. Mm. What we could reasonably expect when you stop the lockdown is for the disease to start running again. And China, I believe, with its 3,248 declared case uh, deaths, is in a position where it looked pragmatically as China would, at what was happening and decided we've had 3,000 odd people die of this virus, uh, we can control it and keep it going at that sort of level, which is high, but for a country with a population of near as damn it 2 billion, um, that's not a big figure. We can keep it going at that rate by continuing the lockdown. The only drawback is that is going to cause our economy to tank. We don't have a benefit system. We don't have a comprehensive health system. We don't have trade unions. We don't have a stable labor force. We have a peasant community that is forced into cornubations and industry. And if our industry fails, we have no way of supporting them. So we would start having famine pretty damn quickly. And we're better off with the coronavirus running through society and killing a number of people rather than a famine that kills huge numbers of people. Yeah, there's also bearing in mind in China, we know that right now there are one million Muslims who have been rounded up and taken to education camp, should we say. Now, China, it's nearer two million. You may well be right, but China denies that they even exist. So when it comes to getting the truth out of the Chinese government, I, I take lots of things with a pinch of salt, I'm afraid. So I understand we, what we you say. We take it all with a pinch of salt. Yeah, yeah. But I, I, I certainly don't believe official information that comes out of China. Now, let's, let's look at some of the countries where we can have some understanding of it being somewhere approaching a guideline, if not correct. Hmm. Spain is fast catching up with Italy. Yes. Italy on 47,000 cases, 
Spain is now up to 21,500. Germany is on near as damn it 20,000. Iran is on near as damn it 20,000. America's on almost 19,000. And this again with America is a country that the figures have very little meaning in that we know that with a population of 350 to 370 million, they only have 1.3 million test kits. Mm. So they have tested very few people, therefore they've had a need to declare very few. And it is quite obvious that the people of America don't trust their government, whatever they may say about this one, that one, or the other one, um, running for president. Uh, they generally don't trust their government, they don't trust their armed services, and they don't trust their police to protect them. And they have no effective health system. So this, the last few days have broken all records, apparently, in the purchase of firearms by American citizens. Oh yeah, so, I, 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 saw, I saw footage of that myself. But to move on to where we are in our own country and what we've seen now, you could argue, and maybe I agree with this point, that Boris Johnson should have announced what he announced um, this evening several days ago. But this is where I would we are. argue with you. Yeah, okay. But where we are today is this. Pubs, cafes, theatres, cinemas are all now being told to close down, um, certainly by tomorrow, preferably this evening. And Boris Johnson also made it clear that he was saying, even if they are opening this evening and it's not possible for them to close down straight away, do not go out this evening, this Friday night. And it looks as though they're going to be closed down now for some considerable time. We have seen uh, announcements made in the middle of the week, um, first of all by the Welsh government and then just a matter of hours later by the UK government that schools were to close by the end of this week and will remain closed quite possibly now into the summer holidays. Life in this country is economically grinding to a halt and this will have all sorts of implications. The Chancellor of the Exchequer, Rishi Sunak, announced a £300 billion package of measures at the start of the week. We're now at the end of the week and he announced plans today to make sure people are able to get by and pay their bills if they're not able to work or have suffered hugely, uh, lost their jobs. One million people have lost their jobs this week alone in Britain. Uh, a lot of self-employed people, uh, whether they're in the catering industry, the entertainment industry and all the knock-on effects, they're going to get a substantial amount of help to make, make sure they get by. In terms of life in this country and the way the government has handled this, overall, I don't think it's been perfect, but I would give Boris Johnson an eight or a nine out of 10 for the way he's handled things this week. I would totally agree with you. Um, I think that the government's uh, achievements and handling of the situation have more than borne out that the British people made so much the correct decision in voting them in with a notable majority. And the only thing that they seem to have stinted themselves on is keeping uh, the Labour Party out of sight and silent because they have proved a liability throughout this. Uh, we Can I stop you there? Because I, I was very, very disappointed by John McDonnell this afternoon, because as soon as the press conference ended with Boris Johnson, Rishi Sunak and the medical expert, they did a live interview on Sky News with John McDonnell. And he was immediately nitpicking 
um, Rishi Sunak's announcement saying, oh, 80%, he said he's going to pay 80% of the wages. Is the obligation therefore going to be on the employer to pay the other 20%? And I was thinking, what an unbelievably stupid thing to say. First things first, Rishi Sunak made that announcement. He did not put meat on the bone because there wasn't time to put meat on the bone. He probably hasn't had time to work out the detail of it himself yet, but he was saying, this is the basic outline of what we're going to do. Point two, what a stupid thing for John McDonald to say, will employers pay the remaining 20%? Well, I'm sorry, a lot of employers, this is going to be hard enough for them already without an obligation to pay that 20%. So that was, I thought, John McDonald at that point, nitpicky, was completely unacceptable. What he should, should have said is, I will study the Chancellor's proposals in more detail when they are published and will offer support and constructive criticism. Because to me, this is a time of pulling together. I make a comparison to the situation in World War II, where Winston Churchill rightly brought Clement Attlee, the Labour leader, and several senior Labour ministers into his cabinet com uh, committee, his central committee of it. But there was a big difference then. The Labour Party of the 1940s was a party of patriotic socialists and grown-ups. The party Jeremy Corbyn leads, particularly his cabal around him, is not. The gentle idiots. Hmm. Um, but do down. remember, do remember the government of um, the coalition government of wartime was, I think it was off the top of my head, was 392 conservatives. And no, the, it, it, it was a very high percentage. I was going to quote accurate figures and I'm, I'm sorry, this, I've forgotten the accuracy of it, but it was very clearly an overwhelming conservative majority and Churchill had the good grace to bring in some of the intelligent Labour politicians of the day. There are no intelligent Labour politicians of this day. They are all jingoists, extremists, and all they can do is criticise every effort the government makes however sensible it is, just to posture and pose. And yeah. I think best summed up by the joke doing the rounds of Diane Abbott, who has suggested that they stop filming Casualty and Holby City so that they can redeploy the nurses into, back into the health service. <laughs> it just about sums up the utter incompetence of the opposition party and the embarrassing comments they are making. Yes. And, they and are harming this country and almost visibly doing it deliberately, even to the point that they resoundingly voted out Jeremy Corbyn, where he took the worst beating that the Labour Party has taken since the 30s for in the general election and yet we still hear from the blithering idiot and there isn't there's an election campaign for a new leader of the labor party going on months later and there isn't a single solitary credible individual standing in that election we could do a podcast on that another time and maybe we will but looking at the immediate situation now of where we are in britain and what we can all do we have seen i think in the course of particularly the last week 
both the best and the worst in human nature. We've seen great acts of individual kindness, people doing small deeds to help out one another. We've also seen an element of greed and selfishness and irresponsible behavior. Looking at where we are right now, the supermarket shelves are bare. We've all seen the freezers, the bread aisles, um, the tin dials. There is not much in the supermarkets right now. How do we proceed from here? Because, okay, let's take something basic like a tin of beans, for example. Now, we can get the ingredients together, the process of putting the sauce in and in the machinery and put it in a tin and put it in the They're in a warehouse already. Yeah, but what I'm getting at is the process of putting those tins together, so forth, and everything that goes with it. The staff may not be able to get to work to do their job in the days and the weeks ahead. We're going to have to get used in ways we can't really comprehend at the moment, a level of disruption to supplies in supermarkets. What is the sensible way to proceed in the weeks ahead? Is it to have a, not to hoard like mad, but to have a reasonable amount of food that will keep in your home? Is it to only get what you need for now and be aware of the needs of others? Because I think that is a very big element of this. What advice would you give people when they're out and about trying to shop in the days ahead? My wife and I have been spending approximately 20% more on the trolley of shopping that we have been buying each time we go to the supermarket. We've been doing it now for several weeks in order to build up what we believe we can use to keep us without leaving the house for three weeks. We do not have to bring any food into the house. This has not necessitated panic buying. We have just slowly and steadily increased the amount of food we have in our pantry. And I would suggest that anybody does this. Don't dash out and try and buy it all at once, selfishly denying other people. There are old age pensioners who go shopping every couple of days because they walk home carrying their food and other purchases. Don't go panic buying and stripping the shelves because there are the key workers and particularly nursing staff who are working anything up to 40-hour shifts at the moment in A&E who are there to take care of us if we are unfortunate enough to need their service. They need to buy their food when they come off of their shift. And there is the recording on YouTube of a young nurse in her car in tears because the shelves were stripped. You're right, and I've seen that, and it is distressing. She'd put in a very long shift, and she just wanted something basic to eat, and there was nothing left in the supermarket. So you are absolutely correct, and I've actually been behaving in a very similar way to you. Uh, I haven't been hoarding um, food, but I've bought a little bit more, and I've got enough stuff that will keep for quite some time if I am not able to shop for several weeks. And that is the correct way to behave. And I think you've got that spot on. In terms of the long-term picture, this is the final point now. I think if we're honest, and none of us knows how long this is going to go on, but we're looking at a process of at least several months of significant disruption to our lives. And I would say two things to people. Point one, we've got to get used to this as the temporary way of living. And point two, when this eventually comes to an end, 
the economic recovery is going to be very, very long, not only for this country, but for the world. And I don't have all the solutions because I don't know the extent of the damage, but we are going to be uh, many, many years recovering from this, I think. I would go as far as to say that if we cooperate with our government and we help our government in every way and we help the people around us in every way we possibly can, we are well aware from the actions they've taken that our government and our keynote services are doing all they reasonably can to help us, that we will pull through this. It may not be comfortable, but we will pull through it if we all help upwards and downwards in society. And if we all pull in the same direction, and if somebody can put a gag on those who are trying to disrupt it by sowing doubt and sowing uh, foolish rumours and acting selfishly. It, however, if we do not do that, I think it will be very, very easy for us to find ourselves back in the Stone Age. I'm inclined to agree with you. And we have a duty to help, obviously, our families, but also our other citizens around us. We talked about the NHS workers, and it is just a dreadful situation where somebody can put in a really long shift, want to pick up a bite to eat on their way home and find there's nothing on the supermarket shelf. That just must be a horrendous thing to experience. But we have a duty, as I say, how we help people is a, is a final point here then, because yes, We've got, obviously got a duty to elderly citizens and those who can't get out so easily, people with learning difficulties. But again, we're told to keep our distance in physical terms. So if there's somebody living near you who you know is elderly or has a learning difficulty, what is the correct way to help them? Well, I would personally like to congratulate, I don't know his name, the fishmonger who put an open advertisement onto the internet to the to the nurse and anyone in her condition uh, her problem who was in key services who said he delivered in her area and would deliver fish at a 50 percent discount Hmm. well done to him yeah now i think we should be doing more of that as a society agreed i already have two or three people who every time i leave the house I phone them up to see if they need anything. Mm. I would expect everybody to do that. And I saw one area in a city, um, I can't tell you where, where they were putting a green piece of paper in their front window. It was terraced houses in their front window. If they were willing to help others and if they needed help, they put a red piece of paper wonderful so that's that is a good idea and i take my hat off to whoever's doing that what i would suggest is that is actually a very good simple way of doing it but we need to extend that well beyond that little community that's a very good national system and a very good way of doing things and and all i would also say is woe betide anyone who's taken advantage of others at this time in various ways you know that, there was that one horrendous example some shop managed to get hold of some hand sanitizer and was charging something like 20 quid a bottle that is despicable 
um, as is anybody if they see a red label in, in a person's window saying they need stuff and then decides to rob them. Anyone who does that is the scum of the earth. An old, old age pensioner on her way home from the super, uh, one of the supermarkets not very far from where I live mm. had her shopping stolen from her. Yeah, that is absolutely despicable. And, and the people who are doing things like that are the scum of the earth and we shouldn't, uh, shouldn't hesitate in saying so. Um, on a, a slightly lighter note then to conclude on, how are you keeping yourself cheerful at the moment? Me? Yeah. I can laugh at anything. Um, I, I'm in the joyous position that I have a black sense of humour that gets me through most things. It's got me through 20-odd years of cancer, repeatedly occurring, mm. uh, where when I was going in for chemo and radiotherapy on a daily basis... Um, I might add I was driving the best part of 150 miles an hour down the, the motorway because it didn't really matter if I was caught breaking the law because I'd been given two months to live. And mm. I thought it would be fun to go out. Um, <laughs> I've been in your car. car. I, I, I know what it's like. I've been in your car. And so you, you're, you're keeping going then. But the, the best advice for people who are finding it miserable and are finding it hard to cope, there was a very good piece of advice on breakfast television the other day. And there's, there's three things you can do every day. Point one, ask yourself, what have I done to make somebody else happy today? Point two, what has somebody else done to make me happy today? Point three, what have I learned today? And if you just focus your mind on that, it takes the focus away from yourself whilst also addressing your own needs and also keeps you going a little bit. And if people, because there are people who are feeling very lonely at the moment, there's a lot of very frightened people out there. And there are coping mechanisms needed. Now, you're getting by, and to be honest, so am I at the moment. But we do have to be aware that some people, it's taking a psychological toll on them big time. Well, every day I went in for treatment, I spent time on the internet before going and chatting to friends on the phone and tracked down another medical joke. Mm. And I went into hospital for my treatment and I felt very sorry for the nursing staff who had to administer painful treatments and were also administering treatment to people, the majority of whom were going to be dead within six months. A very depressing job. So I came up with a medical joke, a different one, every single day I went in there. Mm. It cheers everyone up. Some of them were awful jokes, but... Yeah, I've, I've heard your jokes, yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it kept people laughing, even if they were bad, because everybody wanted to be happy. 